सुबह के लिए तेरे धन्यवाद करते हैं पिछले दिनों में तूने हमारी सहायता की तेरे वचन से सीखने के लिए समझने के लिए तूने शक्ति दी बल दिया समझ दी उसके लिए तेरे धन्यवाद करते हैं कोरोना के तकलीफ से हमें दूर रखा उसके लिए भी तेरा धन्यवाद करते हैं तेरे हाथों में रेबन तू सौंपते हैं आत्मा से भरपूर कर जिन वचनों की हमें जरूरत है सुनने में समझने में और उसके अनुसार अपने जीवन व्यतीत करने में तू सहायता कर मदद कर हमारे समझ को खोल दे प्रभु जी आत्मा से भरपूर होकर बात करे उसके लिए तू सहायता कर जो लोग आए हैं उनके लिए तेरा धन्यवाद जो लोग यात्रा में है जो लोग ज्वाइन करना चाहते हैं प्रभु जी उन्हें अतिशीघ्र लिया ताकि सब मिलकर तेरी महिमा स्तुति कर पाए उसके लिए तू सहायता कर मदद कर ईश मसीह के पवित्र मीठे मधुर नाम मांगते हैं ओके थैंक यू अंकल राइट सो आई विल शेयर द स्क्रीन राइट नाउ एंड वी विल गेट इनटू स्टडी ऑन हैंड टुडे Can you all see this? Yeah. Yes. Yes. Okay, yes. Good. Yes. Yes. Okay. Okay. I got that. <laughs> all right. So uh, on the first day, we looked at um, the deity of Christ. We saw from the Bible that um, Jesus claimed to be God, and that he understood he was God. and um, in his self consciousness he knew he was god and that's why he went about doing things and acting in a way that only god could do and god could act we saw biblical evidences for that and then we also saw uh, uh, the evidences for the humanity of christ that jesus is not just truly god he is also truly man he is just like any one of us uh, save the nature of sin he did not have sin so we saw on the one hand he is truly god on the other hand he is truly man and uh, we struggle to understand ourselves with one nature uh, i'm pretty sure it's difficult for all of us to understand two natures coming together in one person especially a divine nature an infinite divine nature coming together with a finite human nature it's difficult uh, and yet we tried our best to look at some of the heresies that were there that were not represent uh, representing the person of christ well and then we went on to see the chalcedonian definition uh, that clearly defined as best as humanly possible for us how these two natures come together in the person of christ the unity of the person of christ the divine nature and human nature coming together in one person and that is called hypostatic union we saw that it was a little difficult last session was and it was not meant to be easy if anybody would make it very simple and very easy he is not rightly representing the person of christ uh so it's good that it was difficult for our understanding so we'll have to go back prayerfully think think through the scriptural material the material that we have given as a sample here and uh, prayerfully try and understand as best as we can this mag- this magnificent figure of the person of christ um like like we began now uh, with the verse uh, he is the author and the perfecter of our faith isn't it so we need to understand him so it's good that we getting this time to understand him better now we come to a very important aspect called the impeccability of christ the impeccability of christ now uh, the word itself helps us understand the word 
uh, uh, what it means uh, in relation to Christ, the impeccability of Christ. He is perfect. He is sinless. By this we mean that it is not just that Jesus Christ did not sin. That is clearly affirmed by the Bible. Yes, he did not sin. And we look at that. But we also need to understand that Christ could not sin. Now notice, it is not just that he did not sin, but he could not sin. Now we look at the reasons why he could not sin. What we are saying here is that it was impossible for Christ to sin. Firstly, we look at the biblical material as to what the Bible says about the sinlessness of Christ. Number one is the fact that Jesus was sinless. That is affirmed by a plethora of evidence in the New Testament, especially. We see that Jesus was sinless. We see that he did not have any sin. We see that he perfectly pleased the Father. We see that he perfectly kept the law. Uh, there was no sin in him in word or deed or thought or anything. So we look at a few verses as a sample for what we're trying to understand here. John 8, 46, Jesus looks at uh, his opponents there and he says, he questions them and he says, which of you convicts me of sin? Which of you convicts me of sin? And the beauty of this question is that there was no answer from the other side in the affirmative saying that uh, we can convict you of sin or of some sin. There was nobody who could convict Jesus of any sin because Jesus was sinless. And the gospels clearly portray that for us. In, in his trial uh, before Pilate, Pilate washes his hands and says, I find no fault with this man. There is no crime that he can be convicted of. Number two, John 8, 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. By that, uh, we can infer that Jesus is claiming to be absolute purity. He is a light. See, there's no darkness at all in him. And he is also claiming to be morally pure. I am the light of the world. That is number two. Number three is John 8, 29. Jesus says, I always do the things that are pleasing to him. He's referring to God the Father. He always does things that are pleasing to God the Father. And what are the things that please God the Father? The perfect keeping of the law, uh, things being done to the glory of his name, and things being done in obedience to him, to his word, all these are the things that please the Father. And Jesus never displeased the Father. I always do things that are pleasing to him. Number four, Acts 2.27. Notice what uh, Peter calls him here. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, he's quoting there, or let your Holy One see corruption. Notice he's called the Holy One there. He's holy, he's set apart, he's morally pure. So he's called the Holy One. Again, in the book of Acts, he's also called the Righteous One. Several times in the New Testament, he's called the Righteous One. He say, uh, you know, John talks about this in 1 John. He says, uh, we have an advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. 
Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Hebrews 4.15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. One minute, please. I have a chat here. Um, did somebody leave the chat? Okay, anyway, I don't see any question here, but the chat pinged. So we'll go back to Hebrews 4.15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every aspect has been tempted as we are, and you know the rest of the verse, yet without sin. He was tempted in every way, in every respect, that's a better term, in every respect, just as we are on a daily basis, and yet he was without sin. So it is a consistent affirmation of the New Testament, particularly that Jesus never sinned. He was sinless. Here is one of my favorite verses in the New Testament. Peter says, he's a lamb without blemish or spot. Beautiful words. He's a lamb without blemish or spot. There was, there was nothing that was even an inkling or an iota of sin in him. 1 Peter 2.22, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Or in other translations, the word actually used is the word guile. There was no sin in him, nor was any guile found in his mouth. Uh, either one is fine. It uh, conveys the same concept. So again, coming back to what the New Testament says about Jesus, the Gospels, the Book of Acts, uh, the Epistles, they consistently affirm the fact that Jesus is sinless. He never sinned. There was no sin in him. In his humanity, also, he never sinned. Now we come to the deduction in one sense that Jesus could not sin. How do we say or why do I believe that Jesus could not sin? or that it is impossible for him to sin. I'll give you a few uh, deductions. We can't get into the references here. I'll give you a few deductions. Uh, most of the references for these things that I'm gonna give you, we have already seen in these sessions. Number one, if Jesus's human nature had existed by itself, just one moment. All right. Um, Oops. One second, let me get to that slide. Okay, here it is. If Jesus' human nature had existed by itself, it would have been free from sin, but nonetheless able to sin. Now notice here, we said that Jesus had everything just like us. He was truly human, just like all of us. He had uh, a normal birth. His birth was not miraculous. His conception was miraculous. He just came through the same birth canal that we all come through. Um, so it was a natural birth, but the conception was miraculous. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. So he had a normal birth. He had a normal childhood uh, and all of that. He he went through all the experiences that you and I go through as human beings. He was tempted to. Um, 
He had to learn languages. We saw all of that. Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor before God and men. We saw that. Now, Jesus had a truly human nature, but he did not have a sinful nature attached to that human nature like we are all born with. So, if you just look at the human nature of Jesus, it was like the state in which Adam lived before the fall. I'm just talking about the human nature of Jesus. Okay? It was like the state in which Adam lived before the fall. Now, Adam was able to sin, although he hadn't sinned before the fall. He hadn't sinned before the fall, but he was able to sin, and that's why he did sin. But so in that sense, if Jesus' human nature had existed by itself alone, although it would have been free from sin, nonetheless, it would have been able to sin. But Jesus' human nature never existed apart from union with his divine nature. Now we saw right from his birth, right from his conception, the divine nature always existed in union with his human nature. That's why he was a God-man even when he was an infant. Remember the wise men came from the East and worshipped him? Why did they worship him? Because he is truly divine. He is God. So there was never a moment in the earthly existence of Jesus when the human nature existed apart from union with his divine nature. It's just not possible. If you can separate these two natures, you don't have Jesus. And that's why the Chalcedonian definition we saw clearly stated that these two natures come together inconfusedly, without confusion, uh, without change, unchangeably, without division, without separation. We saw that, right? So without confusion, without change, without division, without separation. So if the human nature of Jesus had existed by itself, although it did not sin and it wouldn't have sinned, it would have been possible for it to sin. But Jesus' human nature never existed apart from union with his divine nature. Now, notice the argument here. Sin would be a moral act that would have involved the whole person. What do I mean by this? Let me explain this. Last time when we were, we were talking about the hypostatic union, we said this. Anything one nature does, the person of Jesus does. Right? Anything one nature does, the person of Jesus does. And that's why we saw that we, uh, the gospel writers write that Jesus thirsted. Jesus was thirsty. Jesus was hungry. Jesus was weary. Jesus died. Although he thirsted in his human nature, although he got weary and tired in his human nature, although he uh, ate in his human nature, although he suffered and died in his human nature, anything either nature does, the person of Christ does. The gospel writers tell us that Christ died for us. The epistles tell us the same thing, that Christ died for us. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. A very common uh, uh, confession throughout, throughout the Bible, not just in the Gospels. Now hear me, please. I wanted to follow this argument along. When you have a nature, you have all the attributes of nature coming with it. Get the point? 
when you have a nature with you, you have all the attributes of the nature coming with you. You and I have human natures and we have the attributes of human nature, which is being finite, which is be, uh, being able to learn some stuff because we are not omniscient. We don't know everything. We have to learn stuff. Um, things like we, will, we, have, we are localized. We are at a particular place at a particular time. We are not omnipresent like God is. We hunger, we thirst, uh, and we get tired. So these are all attributes that come with being human. These are all attributes that come with um, being finite as human beings. Now, these attributes are not necessarily moral attributes. These are just attributes that come with being a human. But sin is not something that comes as an attribute to being human. Because at least we know two people in the history of mankind who existed without a nature of sin or without sin in them. Number one is Adam before the fall, and of course Eve also before the fall, uh, but I'm just taking Adam as a representative. Um, and then you also have the person of Jesus. So it is possible to have a human nature with all the human attributes and yet be without sin because sin is not a natural attribute that comes with being human. You just sin or it is passed on to you. And we know from the Bible that the human nature was not passed on to Jesus. Sorry, the, the, uh, the, the sinful nature was not passed on to Jesus, although Jesus was human. Now, the point here that I'm trying to make is that sin is a moral aspect. If Jesus could have sinned in his human nature, then it is a moral issue and a moral act of defiance of God's law that needs to be applied to the entire person of Christ. Why? Because anything either nature does, the whole person of Christ does. So if Jesus had sinned in his human nature, then it is the person of Christ sinning who is both human and divine. That is a contradiction in terms. I hope you followed the argument here. Number four, it is impossible for God. To, now, Jesus has both human and divine nature. We saw that. So since if one nature sins, that is the human nature is able to sin, it's like the whole person of Christ sinning, but it is impossible for God to sin. Why? Because sin is a contradiction within his nature. Sin is inconsistent with his nature. God is pure holiness. Uh, he cannot look upon sin in comfort. It is impossible for God to lie and all those things. We know the verses. Therefore, Jesus could not have sinned. Therefore, it is impossible for Christ to have sinned. Now, let me just go through the argument again because it's very, very important. A lot of theologians do teach that Jesus could have sinned. I think it's a blasphemy. Uh, I think it's not rightly understanding that uh, two natures coming together. But I've always taught and I always teach, and I'm on the side of some good, sound theologians who teach this as well, that Jesus did not just not sin, but he could not sin. It is impossible for him to sin. Why? Because these two natures come together in one person, and if one nature sins, which is, which is a moral issue, it is a defiance of God's law, 
It's a moral issue. If one nature sins, it's like the whole person of Christ sinning and it is impossible for the divine nature or God to sin. Therefore, Christ could not have sinned. Now, you may have a question in your minds. Uh, several questions, in fact, but I'm just going to pick out one question that may have uh, come to the fore of your minds. And that is, Raven, if Christ could not have sinned, then is the temptation real? Yes. Yeah. You're nodding your heads. Yeah. Is the temptation real? Now, this is the affirmation that the this is the affirmation that uh, the New Testament gives. Number one, that the temptations were real. The gospel writers were not writing non-historical material. The gospel writers were not writing uh, made-up, fabricated history. But Christ indeed was tempted. It is a true historical fact. And given the fact that Jesus was away in a lonely place, he went into the wilderness. Uh, how did the gospel writers get it? All the details must have come from the person of Christ himself. And so there was no lie there. There was no fabrication of history. Christ really was tempted by Satan, by the devil. Now, when Christ was tempted, if he could not sin, were the temptations real? Yes, the temptations are absolutely real. I'll, uh, we can't get into the theology of it. We don't have time. We have a lot to cover today. But I'll just give you one illustration that perhaps will touch the nerve of it and make you think, and then we will move forward. The writer of the Hebrews says this. He says, uh, we just read the verse. Um, he was tempted in every way or in every respect is a better term. Every respect, just as we are, yet without sin. So the temptations are real. On the one hand, uh, the New Testament is affirming that Christ's temptations were real. On the second hand, it is also affirming that Christ did not sin when he was tempted or in all of his life. And we can also say that Christ could not sin. Now, how do you put all these three things together? That the temptations were real, he could not sin, and you can understand the fact that he did not sin. That's, that's a, it's a bygone conclusion, obviously. Uh, so how do you understand that temptations were real? Now, here's the point. Uh, follow this illustration, please. If there was an army that was invincible, you could never defeat that army. Nobody could ever defeat that army. If there was an army like that, that was invincible, invincibility does not mean that the army is not susceptible to attacks from outside. It just means that whenever there's an attack, the army always wins. Get the point? So invincibility does not mean there won't be attack. Invincibility only means that whenever attacked, it'll stand the attack and it'll win always. So the temptation was a real temptation. And Jesus Christ could not sin. He did not sin. He could not sin. And, and because of that fact, it doesn't mean that the attack was not real or the temptation was not real. It was a real temptation. In fact, if there is anybody who could have stood the utmost uh, force and, and, and the effect and the weight of temptation, it was Jesus. You know why? I'll tell you this. Most of us, when we are tempted, uh, we succumb to it. Some, some of us immediately, others of us, we strive for a bit and we resist for a bit. And then we succumb to it uh, at some point. So the thing is, it's like a, a force coming and hitting you and you're succumbing to the force. If you're succumbing to that force, it means you've not uh, 
understood or felt the full weight of that force. It is only that person who's able to stand erect when the full weight of the force hits him is a person who knows and understands how forceful and how heavy or how impactful that force is that hit him. So if there's anybody who knows the full impact of what a temptation is as a human, it is Jesus of Nazareth. And yet he did not sin and he could not sin as well. One more illustration just, uh, just to make this clear and then we'll move forward. Uh, if I have uh, a waterproof watch, uh, waterproof does not mean that water doesn't fall on it or that water cannot fall on it. It only means that when water falls on it, it'll remain waterproof. Water will not get into it. The other point, right? So uh, what we are saying here is that Jesus could not sin and he did not sin when tempted. It doesn't mean the temptations were not real. They were real temptations. I'll just pause here for a little bit and then uh, see if you have any questions on this aspect and then we'll move forward, please. Uh, is it clear? Can you, can a couple of you tell me, please? Is it clear? Oh, okay. I have questions here. If Jesus could not say, how did that align with the human nature being tempted? I just answered that question. Your voice is clear. Thank you. Uh, if Christ could not sin, how does he represent on the cross? Uh, he, he represents us on the cross, not because he sinned, but he represents on the cross precisely because he did not sin. You needed a perfect sacrifice, right? If Christ could have sinned, then he would have been paying for his own sins, which is impossible. I can't pay for my own sins. It is only the perfect God-man who can represent us. He represents us not because he is he can or he cannot sin. We affirm that he could not sin, but he represents us because he's truly human. And as somebody who's truly human, he is able to represent man before God. Any other questions? Uh, Raven. Yes, uh, Danny, right? Yeah. Danny? Danny, right? Abhi, Danny? Abhi. Abhi, okay. Abhi, can you speak up a little bit, please? Please. Uh, can you hear yes, me now? Clear. Yes, clear. Yeah. Go ahead, please. Go ahead, please. Is the same as what you had mentioned, that uh, the Apollo heresy as such, which you had mentioned earlier, it seems like the same, uh, the one which I was confused about earlier. Oh, Okay, so you were confused about Apollinarianism? Yes, correct. Oh, okay. <laughs> I remember that. Okay, so uh, yeah, Apollinarianism stated, you remember, right? Apollinarianism stated that uh, Christ had a human body, but did not have a human mind or human soul. If you have a human mind, if you don't have a human mind or a human soul, that does not make you truly human. So you cannot represent us on the cross or or even otherwise. But here we are not talking about not having a human nature uh, in its entirety, but we are talking about not having a sinful nature. So a human nature does not necessarily have to come with a sinful nature unless, unless uh, you are born in the lineage of Adam. 
um, as a human being, and we all are. And Christ also was born, but the Bible affirms that he did not have a sinful nature. I don't see how not having a sinful nature uh, does not make him human. In fact, it makes him a better human uh, who's able to connect with God better because he does not, he does not have a sinful nature. Um, okay, if you say so, I'm not yet clear no, on I'm that. No, sorry, if I say <laughs> Don't ever think if I say so. Just, just think about it in terms of what the scripture is saying and the explanations we are giving, that's all. Okay, Abhi, uh, you can okay, you can sure. call me up, okay? Or we will we will sit together. All right, anybody else? Uh, do I have any chats here? Chat, okay, no. I'm moving forward, all right? Okay, now we come to the work of Christ. So far, we talked about the person of Christ. Now we talk about the work of Christ. Of course, there's some overlap between the two. You can't completely distinguish between uh, one with the other. But just for the sake of our understanding and systematizing things, we say that the one, what we studied so far is the person of Christ. And what we are studying so far, uh, going to study now is the work of Christ. We talk about something called the atonement or sacrifice. You know what atonement is. It means uh, it has several meanings. It has different shades of meanings as well. And you need to look at the picture holistically. But for the moment, let's just say that atonement means a sacrifice for sin that reconciles two parties, especially God and man. It's a sacrifice for sin that reconciles two parties, God and man. So the, the atonement is talked about throughout the Bible. You have the atonement in the Mosaic Covenant. You have um, the blood of bulls and goats being, uh, being offered uh, year after year. We, we see that on the day of atonement, Yom Kippur, as it is called, the high priest would take the blood of bull or goat, uh, and uh, he would go there inside to atone for the sins of Israel. It is once a year, Yom Kippur. So uh, you see that the concept coming through the entire Bible and in the New Testament, you see that Christ came to be the atonement for our sins. You see that in the gospels, you see it explained in the epistles. You see that also in the book of Revelation, he's a lamb who was slain from before the foundation of the world. So what is the nature of the atonement? Now, by the way, the atonement itself is a huge concept, is a huge topic, and uh, we need days together, in fact, to study it in detail, months together, uh, but we'll just, again, touch the nerve of it, just to pick your uh, interests and uh, also your desire to study more so that you can go back and study more uh, on this. Uh, there are some fine books written on the atonement. I can recommend a few. I think every Christian ought to read uh, at least a couple of books on the atonement. I would suggest strongly a book by John R. W. Stott. It's called The Cross of Christ. Now make a note of this. The Cross of Christ by John R. W. Stott. One of the finest, finest books on the atonement alone. Uh, then you have a book by Leon Morris. It is called The Apostolic Preaching of the Cross. Another fine treatment. Uh, of the subject. Then you also have uh, P. 
pierced for our transgressions, uh, a book, surprisingly, I think it was released about 10, 15 years ago. Surprisingly, it came out of liberal England in those days, uh, but very thorough evangelical and uh, very conservative in doctrine, pierced for our transgression. So these are the three books that I would strongly recommend, but uh, the one I would recommend the most to understand this is the Bible, of course. I have a chat here. Hey, uh, what's happening? I... One second, I need to get the... Hey, I'm seeing a chat, but I'm unable to see what uh, the person has written. Could you please write it again if there was a question or clarification? Okay, if there isn't anything, I'll just move forward. All right, okay, I'll move forward. So in talking about the atonement of Christ, we talk about two things. Number one is called the active obedience of Christ. It is called the active obedience of Christ. Uh, you would have guessed it. Uh, the other side of it or the other aspect of it is a passive obedience of Christ that we talk about. So what is the active obedience of Christ? The active obedience of Christ is the fact that he obeyed all the requirements of the law actively in your place and in my place. He, as a representative in your place and my place, perfectly obeyed the will of the Father and he perfectly to a T fulfilled the requirements of the law. That is called the active obedience of Christ. I'll tell you how important this is uh, when we go further. Let me look at a, a couple of verses and then I'll explain this to you. Philippians 3.9, Paul says this, And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. A very clear statement in the New Testament about the imputation of Christ based on uh, about the imputation of righteousness based on your faith in Christ. Notice what Paul is saying. Paul says he has a righteousness. You and I have a righteousness as believers in Christ. But that righteousness is not a result of, my, of our own righteousness that comes from obeying the law. Because you and I cannot perfectly obey the law. It is impossible for us to perfectly obey the law. And that's why there was a, a pure atonement in the person of Christ that was necessary for us to be saved. So we don't have a righteousness that comes by the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. What is Paul saying here? Paul is saying that Paul is talking about imputation here. It's a concept that we need to understand. The word imputation uh, simply means crediting, to credit somebody or somebody's account. So here is Christ on the cross, and here is uh, me or you or any one of us who's a believer in Christ. When Christ died on the cross, 
as I place my faith in Christ, the penalty for my sin is put on Christ and his perfect righteousness that he accomplished, that he got or acquired because of his perfect fulfillment of the law as a man, that uh, righteousness is imputed to me, is given to my credit. And so when I now stand before God, when you stand before God, you and I stand before God, not in our own righteousness because they are like filthy rags, but you and I stand before God in the righteousness that Christ has given to us. And God looks at us through the lenses of the righteousness that Christ has given us. In other words, let me say this, and I'm very careful in my words when I say this, and, but it is absolutely theological and biblical to make this statement. Because I have upon me, or because I have imputed to me the righteousness of Christ, I stand before God in the, in the same way Christ stands before God. Do you hear that? Because I have the righteousness of Christ that has been imputed to me, I stand before God in the same way Christ stands before God because I am standing with his righteousness because of my faith in him. Now, people ask me this question usually. Why did Christ have to be born and live for 30 some years that he lived and then die on the cross? Why could God not have sent him directly from heaven when he was about 30 years old and then put him on the cross directly and let him die? He could have been our substitute even then, isn't it? Good argument, yes. He could have been our substitute even if God had done that but he could not have been able to impute the righteousness that we now have if he had just dropped down from heaven in his mid-30s and died for us on the cross. Why? Because right from the moment of his birth as a man till the time he died on the cross for us, he was perfectly fulfilling the law and fulfilling the requirements of the law as your representative, as my representative. And therefore, he is able to give that righteousness that comes by the perfect obedience to the law to you and to me when we place our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that a beautiful concept? It is called the active obedience of Christ. Now, here is the beauty that we need to understand about our salvation. When we are dead in our transgressions and sins, when we are sinful, the moment we repent of our sin and trust in Jesus Christ. We are not merely brought to ground zero or we are not brought to a place where our sins are merely forgiven. That would have brought us to a state where Adam was perhaps completely forgiven uh, at that point of time. But we are also given much more than that. We are imputed with the positive righteousness of Christ. So it's not merely forgiveness and wiping our slate clean, but it's much more than that. It is writing on our slate the very righteousness of Christ so that God looks at us through the lenses of the very righteousness of Christ. And I stand before God the same way Christ stands before God. 
Now, this is a beautiful concept for our worship. And I think uh, men and women, all of us, we need to remember this on Sunday mornings, that when we sit here on a Sunday morning worshiping Christ, I come before God, not in my own righteousness, it's impossible, but I come before God in the same way Christ comes before God. Can you beat that? There is nothing like this in, in, in any religion. You come before God because of the righteousness of Christ that has been imputed to you. You're not merely forgiven, but you are deemed righteous, positively righteous, and righteousness of Christ has been imputed to you. Did somebody have a question? I saw some kind of a flicker here. Anyway, we'll move forward. For 1 Corinthians 1.30, and because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. He also became to us our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That's, that's the concept that Paul is saying that what I've been explaining so far. Paul says in uh, Romans uh, 5.19, a famous verse, for by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by one man's obedience, obedience to what? Obedience to the law, obedience to the requirements of the law, perfect obedience to the law, the many will be made righteous. And you and I have been made righteous. You and I have the imputation of righteousness because of the active obedience of Christ in his life. Is that clear? Yes, no, maybe. I'd like to hear a couple of responses, please, before I move forward to the passive obedience. Passive obedience. Yeah, that's clear. Yes, yes, yes. Great. Now, you have yeah. the active... Okay, thank you. You have the active obedience of Christ, which is Christ perfectly fulfilling the law. That is the active obedience. Now, you have the passive obedience where he suffered for us, and particularly, he died for us on the cross. He is, that's called the passive obedience of Christ. There he is dying in, in your place, in my place, suffering in your place, in my place, as our representative, as a substitute. In the act of obedience, as our representative, he actively obeyed the law. He obeyed the requirements of the law. He fulfilled the requirements of the law. Paul says, uh, Paul says uh, Christ is the end of the law. He perfectly obeyed the law. He perfectly obeyed uh, the requirements of the law in your place and in my place. Now, the passive obedience of Christ, he suffered in your place and my place, and he died as our representative and also as our substitute. Hebrew 5.8 says, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Passive obedience, he learned obedience through what he suffered. This verse requires some explanation, what is learning obedience and all of that, but Probably someday when we study Hebrews together, perhaps we can get into that. It's a beautiful concept. Uh, but also if you have questions, uh, you can message me later or, or contact me on the phone. Uh, it'll take some time to explain this. Uh, you need to look at the argument of the book of Hebrews to understand this. Hebrews 12, verse 3. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. See, uh, in the life of Christ, he suffered. He suffered throughout his life. He was tempted. Uh, the Gospel of uh, Matthew says this, and Satan left him until an opportune time. Which means, Satan, again, that was not the only temptation that Christ had in his life. It is just what the Gospel writers tell us about. But Christ was tempted several other times because Satan was looking for an opportune time to tempt Christ. So 
he suffered even in that. He suffered from his own people. Yeah, he came to that which was his own and his own does not, did not receive him. So he suffered from his own people. He suffered from his own family, the rejection, um, all of that. So that's why it says, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility. He endured hostility from the Jewish people. He also endured hostility from, from the uh, Romans. He endured hostility for you and for me. So his suffering involved his whole life in one sense. Isaiah 53, he's also talking about the pain on the cross. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows is called. See, that's a lifetime of thing. He was called a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And, he was, uh, and we esteemed him not. He was a man of sorrows. So he suffered throughout his life. But particularly, he suffered for us on the cross. And he died for us on the cross. And about the ninth hour, which is about three o'clock in the afternoon, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that is the passive obedience of Christ where he suffers for us and he dies for us on the cross. So you have the physical pain and death on the cross. We saw it, his beard was pulled. There was a crown of thorns that was put on his head. He was scourged. Um, you know, in, in the Jewish uh, world, uh, you could only be scourged 40 times. And just to make sure that they got the counting right, they would only scourge somebody 39 times. But the fact of the matter is, that's not the case with Romans. The Romans never gave uh, any, uh, any inkling to such an idea. For them, until they got exhausted, until the Roman soldiers got exhausted, they would just scourge the person. So your back would be battered, pulverized, you'd be bleeding, and some of them would even die because of scourging. He endured that physical pain for us. Then you also have the pain, pain of bearing sin. Now here's a pure person. He did not just sin, but he could not sin as well. Imagine having to be reckoned with sinners, having to be counted with sinners, bearing the punishment of sin upon himself as though he sinned. That's why he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken? Um, so there is that suffering as well. There's also the suffering of abandonment from the father. I want to carefully use these words, but it's thoroughly biblical to use the words. There is that abandonment um, from his disciples. And uh, it, 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 it also seems very clear from the gospels and also from the epistles that the father turned his back upon him, so to speak. Uh, and he had to bear alone the penalty for sin. And, uh, and Jesus told his disciples, my, my soul is sorrowful even unto death. There was that sorrow. Would you keep watch with me and pray with me in the garden of Gethsemane? But they all went to sleep. So he, he bore all of these kinds of suffering. And more than that, in your place and my place, he bore the wrath of God in his own body. He bore the wrath of God in his own body. Romans 3, uh, 25, Paul says, God put forward Christ as a propitiation for our sin. We'll study more about propitiation a little later. Uh, but 
in detail when we come to soteriology next Monday. Soteriology is the doctrine of salvation. I'll be taking that. We'll look at what is propitiation a little in detail. Uh, but he propitiated the wrath of God. He exhausted the wrath of God in his own body. He bore the wrath of God. God is angry at you and me because of our sinful nature, because of our actual sin as well. And we are storing up the wrath of God for ourselves until we become a believer in Christ. The wrath of God abides on them is a language that John uses. And Christ took that wrath that is upon you, upon me, upon himself. And he substituted himself in your place and my place. And he bore the wrath of God in his own body. Remember, he prayed, uh, take this cup away from me. What is the cup? The cup signifies the cup of God's wrath. Yet, thankfully, that's just the first part of his prayer. The second part of his prayer said, yet not my will, but yours be done. It was the will of the Father to bruise him, to crush him, for him to drink the wrath of God. So he exhausted the wrath of God by drinking the wrath of God, the cup of God's wrath, to its very last drop. To its very last drop. Um, so he suffered bearing the wrath of God. John says, in this is love, not that we are, 1 John 4, 10, not that this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for us. In the better word, sent his son as a propitiation for our sins. Propitiation. He exhausted the wrath of God. So that is the passive obedience of Christ that we talk about. Passive obedience of Christ. So two obediences of Christ when we understand the nature of the atonement, number one is the active obedience by which he imputes his righteousness to us when we place our faith in him. Number two is the passive obedience of Christ. He suffered for us and he died bearing the wrath of God, the abandonment by disciples, the suffering and all of that, bearing all of that for our sakes as your substitute, as our representative. That's the passive obedience of Christ. Any questions before we move forward, please? Uh, Raven, the purpose of God in uh, the physical suffering of Jesus, it's... Uh, uh, Sujay, can you repeat that, please? You are breaking up. Uh, am I clear now? Yeah. Uh, the question was, what was God's purpose in the physical suffering of Jesus before the cross? The physical suffering of Jesus before the cross, that is also in one sense considered as passive obedience on our behalf. He suffered. He suffered like a human being. That's number one. Number two is the writer of the Hebrews goes one step forward by saying that he learned obedience in his suffering. Those are the two concepts that I see that the Bible presents about the physical suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ. Is that clear? Okay. Uh, well, there is also the historical aspect to it. And we all realize that, that um, other than the sovereignty of God, at that time in, in the period in which Jesus lived, uh, of course, he was born in the fullness of time. But at that time, uh, crucifixion was the most painful uh, form of death, and he had to be crucified in that sense. Of course, it's uh, also a prediction of, uh, of the prophetic schema. For example, things like... Um, uh, cursed is everybody who's hung on a tree and all such things. 
there's also the historical aspect to it, but there is more than that, the theological aspect is he learned obedience and the suffering also throughout his life is seen as a passive obedience on our behalf. Now, we'll come to understanding the atonement. Uh, how do we understand better this atonement? Now, before I move forward, I wanna ask you a question. Uh, is this session much easier to understand than the last session? Yeah. Okay, good. Now, uh, I, I want to make it as clear and as simple as possible in this session, this particular one, because we understand the atonement in the work of Christ, uh, which is essential for our salvation and also for the security, the assurance of salvation, and also for our worship, uh, especially Sunday mornings. Uh, you know, I urge all brothers to get up with these concepts. Just get up with your Bibles, take a verse. Or a small passage, I'm sorry, excuse me, uh, a small passage and uh, explain the atonement and, and lead the congregation in worship. These are beautiful concepts that we can, uh, we can help the congregation understand. We can exhort the congregation. We can comfort the congregation based on all of these, uh, these uh, the understanding of the atonement. Now we come to a little further understanding of the atonement. Number one, there are several here. I just uh, filtered it down to a couple of them. Number one, God the Father meted out the punishment on Christ. Satan did not inflict any punishment on Christ. All right. It is God the Father who meted out the penalty for sin or who inflicted that penalty for sin on the cross. That's exactly the language that Isaiah uses. It pleased the Lord to crush him to bruise him, to pulverize him. That's the language. It pleased the Lord to crush him or to bruise him. It is the father who poured out his wrath upon the son, who bore that wrath in his own body on the cross. The punishment for your sin, the punishment for my sin. So it's God the father. God the son was actually propitiating the wrath of the father in one sense, by being our substitute on the cross for us. It is not the wrath of Satan. Satan has got nothing to do with it. Um, God the Father meted out the punishment on the cross for us. Look at 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sakes, I want you all to memorize this, please. I've not given you any assignments, which I usually do elsewhere I teach, uh, but uh, I want you all as an assignment to memorize this, please. For our sakes, he, that is God, made him to be sin. Who knew no sin? Again, the sinlessness of Christ. Made him to be sin or as a sin offering. Who knew no sin? So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. It does not mean that Christ became sin for us. It means that Christ became a sin offering for us, number one, in the Old Testament concept. Remember, there are five offerings that are mentioned in the book of Leviticus. Uh, you can list it out with me as I list it out for you, if you know it. Otherwise, just listen. Number one is sin offering. Number two is guilt offering. Number three is burnt offering. Number four is grain offering. Number five is fellowship offering or peace offering. So here is there is that allusion to sin offering that Paul is making here. For our sake, he made him to be a sin offering for us who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There's also a parallel here we need to understand. We might become the righteousness of God. 
Does that mean that we actually become pure and holy? No, does that, not, that does not mean that. It means that righteousness is imputed to us in the same sense that Christ did not become a sin or a sinner, but it means that our sin was imputed to him, which means the penalty for our sin was put on him and his righteousness was put on us. There's a double imputation that this verse is clearly talking about. So for our sake, God made him who knew no sin to be a sin for us or a sin offering for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Isaiah 53, 6, I think I've quoted it enough times today. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. All our iniquity, all the penalty for our sin, he put on Jesus and he exhausted the wrath of God in his own body. Isaiah 53, 10. One of my favorite verses in the servant songs. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him, to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, this is guilt offering, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Don't look at the second part of the verse. We will study that some of the time, but look at the first part of it. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him, to put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. Okay, let's quote from verses 6 through 8. Um, um, in uh, what, what, How does the verse begin? Uh, there is no one who can die for a righteous man, uh, though for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God actually, by meeting out the punishment of Christ, is demonstrating his love for us on the cross. John 3.16, we've all studied that in our Sunday school. Isn't it? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. God gave his son because uh, he loved us. So the father actually meted out, inflicted the punishment or the penalty for sin on Christ. Number two, atonement. Now, uh, there are various theories of atonement. Again, we don't have time to get into it. That's a beautiful study once again. Some of the time, uh, when we have time, uh, we, can, uh, we can look into that. There is something called uh, you know, you know, ransom to Satan theory. There's something called example theory. There's something called moral influence theory and all of that. But what we believe in, although there are some aspects to it here and there, uh, what we believe in uh, is the penal substitutionary atonement. Now memorize this phrase, please. Penal, which means penalty. Substitutionary, in your place and in my place, atonement is a sacrifice in one sense. So by penal substitutionary atonement, what we mean is that Christ bore the penalty, penal there, of your sin and my sin and bore the wrath of God for your sin and my sin by taking your place and my place on the cross. Did you hear that? On the cross, Jesus bore your sin and my sin. He took your place and my place. He bore your guilt and my guilt and he died your death and my death. Penal substitutionary atonement. You know what a substitute is, right? You know, we, we are, we're all into some game or the other. You know, some of you are into football. I'm into cricket. Um, we, when a player is injured, we have a substitute 
who plays on behalf of the player, who plays instead of the player, who plays as a representative of that player. It's the same thing. He's our substitute in the sense like he is there instead of us. He is there for us. He is there on behalf of us. Penal, which is the penalty for our sin. He bore the penalty. So it is penal substitutionary atonement. Now, please memorize this. If I bump into you, and oh, no, that's not that's the wrong phrase. It's not if I bump into you, God willing, when I bump into you in the church or somewhere, I'll ask you, what is the theory of atonement we believe in? I, I know who's listening to this class. So I know I'm, I'll bump into some of you and I'll ask the question. Remember this, please. Penal substitutionary atonement. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everybody, who, everybody who's hanged on a tree or everyone who's hanged on a tree. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He became a curse for us. Substitution, one of the clearest verses of penal substitutionary atonement in the New Testament. If somebody asks you, how do you affirm penal substitutionary atonement? Galatians 3.13, for Christ redeemed us from the curse. He purchased us. He paid the ransom. He redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He became a curse for us. Mark 10.45, for even the Son of Man, this is a theme verse of the Gospel of Mark, by the way, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, to serve to the point of giving his life as a ransom for many his life as a ransom for your life, his life as a ransom for my life, his life as a ransom for the life of the whole world. Second Corinthians 5.14, for the love of Christ constrains us or controls us because we have concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all have died. He died for all. He died for all of us. Substitution there. 1 Peter 3.18, for Christ also suffered one for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, the just for the unjust. There's a substitution once again, so that he might bring us to God. What is the reason that the righteous suffered for the unrighteous? So that he might bring us to God. It is for reconciliation that the righteous substituted himself for the unrighteous. The just substituted himself for the unjust. So we believe in penal substitutionary atonement of Christ on the cross or penal substitutionary death of Christ on the cross. The two things we saw, number one is that God the Father, this is understanding the atonement better, God the Father meted out the punishment on the cross. Number two, we call it the penal substitutionary atonement of Christ. Man, time is just flying. Oh, I have a lot to cover. Okay, we'll do a few things. We'll look at the different aspects of the atonement on the cross for us. What do I mean by different aspects of the atonement? Now, the atonement is like, the atonement of Christ, once again, is like a beautiful diamond. You know, I always compare Christ and his work with a diamond, a magnificent diamond, uh, a priceless diamond. And when you look at one face of the diamond, you're looking at one aspect of it. Uh, from the second phase of it, you're looking at another aspect of the atonement. So the, it depends on what face you're looking at. 
that you see that aspect of the atonement when you actually look at the atonement of Christ. It's a multi-dimensional uh, atonement. There are different aspects to the atonement. One aspect cannot exhaust all of the atonement. We just get one side of it or one face of it. I'll give you a few of them and mention a few of them. Again, there's no time to go into detailed explanation of it. There's a beautiful study once again. Someday, God willing, we'll do it. Or uh, the books that I just recommended, uh, they take you in detail to an extent, but they do a good job in, in uh, to these uh, subjects. Number one, there's the aspect of sacrifice. Sacrifice for sin. The Old Testament sacrifices pointed to Christ. They were, in one sense, um, typical of Christ, where Christ was the antitype. They were typifying Christ. They were prognosticating Christ in one sense. Hebrews 9.26, but as it is, he appeared once for all at the end of the ages, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. I love that phrase, at the end of the ages. There's a lot in that. Um, please go and study this verse and understand what is the end of the ages when Christ came to put away uh, to put uh, away sin by the sacrifice of himself he offered himself as a sacrifice remember the sacrifices on the on the high altar in the old testament it's the same thing the same concept christ offered himself as a sacrifice for sin we saw he was a sin offering he was a guilt offering christ uh, paul calls him christ the passover lamb he's our passover lamb so he offered himself as a sacrifice. Number two is the word propitiation. Uh, the theologians did not make up this word. This is a very biblical word. Romans 3.25, Paul uses that. Um, uh, I think the New Testament just uses the phrase about three times. Um, one of which is in 1 John 4.10. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation, to be the propitiation for our sins, or the atonement of sacrifice for our sins. What is propitiation? Propi uh, propitiation uh, is a transaction where God, because of our sin and sin nature, is angry at us. His wrath is upon us. We studied that so far. Propitiation is that aspect of the atonement which exhausts that wrath of God that is upon us by taking the wrath of God in his own body. So Christ, by substituting himself for us on the cross, took the wrath of God upon himself in his own body and exhausted the wrath of God to his very last drop. You know, we sing this beautiful song, uh, the hymn that we sing in our church. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O oh my soul. What does that mean? It means that there is no penalty for sin for me to pay. Why? Because the entire penalty for sin, the wrath of God that I had to bear, was borne by Christ in my place on the cross, and he exhausted the wrath of God so that you and I don't have to bear any more wrath of God. Amazing, isn't it? That's the beauty of the gospel. That's why Paul emphatically, I'm pretty sure Paul was smiling when he was writing this, this verse. There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because Christ exhausted the wrath of God in your place and in my place. There's no more wrath 
left for us to bear. As children of God, we don't bear the wrath of God. We just have to endure once in a while the discipline of God. And discipline is a family term. It is not a legal transactional term. It's a family term. I discipline my child. You, you and I have been disciplined by our own fathers and mothers. It's a familial term. We, but we are disciplined by God in the family, but we are not. God doesn't pour out his wrath. Uh, he doesn't punish us in the legal sense. Number three is the reconciliation. Now, you and I were away from God. Adam, because of his sin, he went away from God. Uh, we were enemies of God. There was only enmity between God and man. Ephesians 2 talks about that. We were dead in transgressions and sin. Um, we were away, especially Gentiles. We were away from the commonwealth of Israel. We had no hope. We had no God. And uh, because of the cross, he's brought us near to God. He reconciled us to God. The reconciliation is done by Christ on the cross. The reconciliation is a beautiful term. And Paul talks a lot about reconciliation in 2 Corinthians 5. In fact, he goes on to talk about us, believers, having a ministry of reconciliation. We actually have the ministry of bringing people from far away to a reconciliatory relationship with God by sharing the gospel with them. That's the ministry of reconciliation. Now look at 2 Corinthians 5, 18 and 19. All this is from God. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. Ah, there it is. And gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Now notice once again, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. Not just the world to himself, there's reconciliation for Jew and Gentile uh, through the cross of Christ as well. Again, Ephesians 2 talks about that. He made, uh, he made the, he brought the two together into one and made them into one man through the cross. Reconciliation. There's also redemption. Now, redemption is a market language, especially a slave market language. The first century was full of slaves. Uh, there were several reasons why it was full of slaves. I've, I've written a lot on that, uh, especially about slavery in, in the Bible, in the first century world. Um, uh, so, uh, suffice it to say that uh, Redemption in the first century world was talked about in the sense of a slave market transaction. The slaves were put on the slave block and they were sold for a price. In fact, Liju was talking about it yesterday. They were sold for a price, different uh, slaves based on their pedigree, based on their credentials, based on the work that they do, and all of that had different prices. And uh, once one master could just put him on the slave block and just sell him to another master. But something else used to happen as well. There was a price for each slave. And if a wealthy relative or a friend would come and pay the price of that slave, the slave could actually go free. He couldn't be a slave anymore. He needn't be a slave anymore. He can choose to be a slave uh, for his own survival if he doesn't have any other means of income. But he's a free man. And that payment that is paid to free somebody from slavery or the bondage of slavery is called ransom. Now, remember the language that Jesus uses? Um, he says, again, Mark 10, 45, the son of man did not 
uh, come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He paid with his life as a ransom for all of us to redeem us. The process is called redemption, to buy out from the slave market, here the slave market of sin, here from bondage to sin and slavery to sin, from the dominion of darkness. And now we have been redeemed. We are free. We are no longer slaves to sin. We are slaves to righteousness. We are born slaves to Christ. That's the language that Paul uses in the book of Romans. Look at uh, what uh, look at what Colossians 1, 13 and 14 say. He has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sin. He has rescued us. It is a rescue mission. He bought us. He ransomed us from the dominion of darkness, from the slave market of sin. We don't have to be slaves of sin anymore. Now, you and I sin, but not with a relationship of a slave master thing, but as free people, we may once in a while sin, although we don't need to sin. Paul talks about that. Um, so, right. Six, seven, seven. All these are uh, you know, uh, uh, same concept that Paul is mentioning there. So he has delivered us, rescued us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of the son that he loves. I'm looking at time. It's uh, 40 more minutes. Uh, transfer us to the kingdom of the son he loves in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sin. So four aspects of atonement. There are several others. You know, there is adoption. Uh, we saw substitution. There's regeneration, all of that. But we'll look at all of that in soteriology, right? That is the doctrine of salvation. So sacrifice is our sacrifice. He is our propitiation. That's the right language. He is our reconciliation. And he, in him, we have redemption. It's also perfectly all right to use the language that he himself is our redemption. That's Pauline language, uh, 1 Corinthians 1.30. That is our redemption. Understood? Any questions? That's about the atonement in a very brief way. I'll pause for 30 seconds to see if there are any questions, please. Did you all understand it so far? Everything about the atonement? Yes. Hey, Danny. Good. Uh, who else? Just Danny? Abhi, did you understand it? Yeah, uh, kind of. Yeah, I did. Okay. Okay, let me pick names. Shefin, is that clear? Yeah, I just uh, wanted to know. Does the piece, are, are you able to hear me, by the way? Yeah, there's a little. Uh, Okay, okay that's, fine, that's fine. That's okay. okay. Yeah. Okay. So I just wanted to know: Does the term propitiation mean like you're gaining favor? Like you're because, gaining favor. Yeah, because uh, that yeah, is what I, you know, I learned. Um, I mean, I was uh, when I was learning First John. The First John one was two. I think this it was about propitiation for sins. Mm -hmm. So I always thought it meant that you're gaining favor. That is it, right? No, uh, there could be a shade of it in that, uh, just just a distant shade of it, but that is not the core concept of propitiation. 
the core concept of uh, propitiation is that he exhausted the wrath of God that was against us. Okay, so he assuaged the wrath of God. He exhausted it. He uh, he bore it so that there's no more wrath to be born. It is it is the concept of wrath being exhausted. It's called propitiation. And okay. as as a side. Uh, a benefit of it because the wrath has been exhausted and we don't have any mm. more wrath there is a divine favor upon us in that sense so it's a distant concept uh, but the core of it is exhausting the wrath of god in your place in my place mm -hmm. okay 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 good uh then caleb did you understand everything yeah uh got it i think there are some questions in the chat though oh really i i'm not seeing that that's why one minute okay I do have it now. Oh my. Um, the power of Christ. Okay. The cross of Christ is available in church library. Okay, good. Uh, church library, we have the cross of Christ is what I'm told. Uh, please contact Sujay if you want to read that book. Can somebody type out the list of books mentioned? I cannot, bro. I need to rush right now. But I can uh, later on put uh, it on the or our WhatsApp group. If Christ could not sin, okay, that is. Um, will you um, be discussing? Yeah, Shefin. Shefin. Is that Nitin or Shefin? Shefin, Shefin. Okay. I, no, I, yeah, there are two more questions. That's why I just want, you were reading it though. Will you okay. be discussing? All right, I'll, will you be discussing the extent of atonement? I wish I could, um, but I think I will discuss that after I talk about the concept of election in soteriology. Ideally, you need to discuss that here because it's the extent of atonement of Christ, but you see, uh, we have time constraints. Sharon Rose, I have a question, but there is no question here. Okay, I'll move on. Um, wouldn't it be fair of God to punish Christ, a sinless man? Is it okay because Christ was willing to suffer my sins? Um, Again, uh, you need to understand here the doctrine of the Trinity, the concept of the Trinity. Um, in one sense, in one sense, it is God sending. Um, it is God sending the second person of the Trinity in the form of a man. So again, it is God coming in flesh to bear His own wrath, so that He could reconcile man to Himself. So let's not see here Christ as some distant figure from God uh, who is unwilling or reluctant to bear the wrath of God and God found him as the only perfect person and he's trying to you know, uh, pour out all the wrath. No, that's not what it is. Uh, it is in one sense, just for you to understand it, so let me use the language, in one sense an understanding within the Trinity. It's a very loose theological language that I'm using on purpose just for you to understand this. It is the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, all of them involved in the work of redemption, but taking different roles, taking different functions in that. Uh, so uh, it is Christ's voluntary act, and yet it is done in submission to the Father, a functional submission, and the Father is pleased with that, with his obedience, and uh, the, the person of the Holy Spirit applies that work of redemption to us when we come to him in faith. So it is not 
an unjust thing that is happening here or a cosmic child abuse as some theologians call it. Okay, Sharon Rose, you just said I have a question. Oh, okay, all right, I have it here. I know some, there's some lag here. Jesus Christ, God and the Holy Spirit are part of the Trinity. Um, okay, and yet they are one. If we consider this aspect of God, then how can we say that God sacrificed? How can we say that God sacrificed Himself for our sake? Um, I think there's a contradiction in the question. Can you please clarify that, please? I see a contradiction in two statements. No, uh, the question is: Then can we say that? Like, can we assume that God sacrificed Himself? Oh, for okay, okay, sake? all right, okay. Then can we say that God sacrificed Himself for us? Um, the right theological, yeah, I got, I got the question. The right theological language, again, theology needs to be precise so that uh, others don't misunderstand us, others don't misunderstand the Bible and the Christian concept. So we need to use precise theological language and we need to be careful as well. It's important. Remember uh, the second session that we studied, an iota can move you from orthodoxy into heresy, you know, homo osseus and homo osseus. So I would say the right theological language here is God in Christ died for us. God in Christ, in the person of Christ, redeemed us. God in Christ uh, uh, propitiated God's wrath. Okay. So that's the language I would use. Okay, thank you. Okay, moving forward. The resurrection of Christ. Um, now, just five more minutes we have. I, I, I don't want to discuss about resurrection much because it's just five more minutes we have. Um, some of the time, God willing, we, we can get together and study resurrection. But uh, I, would, I, would, I would suggest that you study the historical aspects of resurrection. It's very important to study that, especially uh, the world celebrates as Easter next Sunday. And we can look at the historicity of the resurrection, the historicity of the empty tomb, the historicity of the fact that he bodily, physically appeared to his disciples and many others, especially to 500 brethren uh, after his uh, burial. Number three, the, the fact that church arose on the heels of the death of Christ. Uh, there is no other explanation about the fact that he rose again from the dead. And it's based on that belief that the church, uh, the church took birth. Um, so you can study the historical aspects of it. Uh, there are several refer uh, there are several uh, resources I could point you to if you message me personally. I don't want to get into that, but just uh, looking at uh, the theological significance of the resurrection. Again, can't go into the details. I wish I could explain these. These are beautiful concepts, but just write them down and uh, you can go and study them for yourselves. Number one, it ensures our regeneration or our, our salvation. Number two, it ensures our justification. Uh, he, he, di he died on the cross for our sins and he rose again for our justification is what Paul says. It ensures our future resurrection. It means that since Christ died and rose again from the dead, it is a promise that you and I will one day be raised from the dead and you and I one day will have exactly the same kind of a body that Christ had when he rose again from the dead, a glorified body that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, a body that is incorruptible, a body that is glorious. And you and I will have exactly the same body that Christ had after he rose again from the dead. You know, our world needs this message. 
especially in times like this, especially when there's so much of death, there's a death toll increasing, the numbers around the world increasing, there's death, death, death everywhere. And we need the message of hope in today's world. And only the hope of resurrection can give it to us. That exactly like the body of Christ, you and I will have that kind of a body because of our belief in the Lord Jesus Christ when he comes back. So that is about the resurrection of Christ. Offices of Christ, uh, again, great concept, but we don't have time. We just have two more minutes. I want to talk sharp at 12.30. Don't want to waste your time. I know you have to get to your work or the, to, your, to your other things. Offices of Christ, uh, remember these three things, Christ as a prophet, Christ as a priest, Christ as a king. Now, what does a prophet do? A prophet is somebody who faces his people with his back face towards God, which means that he is standing between God and man with his back face towards God and facing his people. He is bringing God's word to his people. That's the work of a prophet. He's bringing God's word to his people. Christ as the prophet, uh, as a as prophet, he brought the word of God to us. Hebrews 1.1 is a vehicle of revelation. In fact, the best vehicle of revelation, the consummate vehicle of revelation. Uh, number two, the priest. While the uh, priest has his back face towards God and facing people, uh, that is a prophet, a priest is faced in the reverse direction. He has his back faced, uh, uh, he has his back to his people and he is facing God in the sense, while a prophet represents God before man, a priest represents man before God. He goes before God and makes atonement or sacrifice on behalf of people. And he also teaches people what is God's word. So priest, Christ as a priest, we know it. You know the story from the New Testament. He offers himself as a sacrifice on our behalf before God. Now Christ is a king. Um, he is a king of kings. He's a lot of lords. Uh, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. And he's a son of man who will come on the clouds of heaven, who will, who will have all authority, glory, majesty, power, and dominion. Uh, I will stop right here. Uh, I hope and it's my prayer that I have moved you in the right direction about the deity of Christ, the humanity of Christ, the unity of the person of Christ, the atonement of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, the offices of Christ, and the sinlessness of Christ, the impeccability of Christ. We've just touched the nerve of all these things, although with a few things we did go in detail, but uh, I'm sure it picked your interest. Please study more about it. It's a beautiful concept to study more and more about the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. All glory, honor, and dominion be to him alone in our lives and in the lives of all the believers in the entire world, in fact. Any questions, please? Any questions? Did somebody send any, any questions? Let me pick on people. Rojit, any questions? I'm good. It's okay. You're good. Okay. Um, Morley, any questions? No, I understood. But not everything. Okay. 
I just almost of it. I will understand. Okay, very good. Um, Sharon Rose, any questions? As of now, no. But in case I get any, I'll send it to you. Okay. Did you understand most of it? Um, I won't say most of it. I would say fifty-fifty because things seem to be way too much. Uh, what do you say? Complicated for my brain to understand. But yeah, somehow I do. I did get an idea overall, but yeah, I would like to take a little, like take it a little more slower and maybe in a more. Okay. Is this, a, is this the first time? Is this the first time you're listening to all of it systematically? Yeah. Okay. All right. So that makes sense. Okay. Good. So uh, please go and study a little further, and uh, things will be much clearer. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. Good. Um, anybody else who's there? All right. Ramanthana, uh, someone sent a question to the chat. Can you explain okay, it? Okay. Did all right. Okay. I have chat here. Did a prophet have a teaching role, or only a revelatory role? Primarily a revelatory role. Uh, some clarifications here and there uh, is possible. Uh, Christ is a prophet mighty in word and deed. Um, yes, uh, you know, there is often an overlap of these two things, a little bit of the teaching role as well, but primarily uh, a revelatory role. He is bringing God's word to mankind, especially prefixed by this uh, phrase in the Old Testament, thus says the Lord, listen to it. So that kind of a thing. Uh, can we say propitiation as God is satisfied because Christ exhausted that absolutely that's the kind of language that paul uses uh, god is satisfied because of christ exhausting the wrath of god yes all right i think uh, i leave you guys i'm sorry i took four more minutes it's just to make sure that we clarify things uh, thank you very much tomorrow you will have pneumatology the doctrine of the holy spirit i will not be taking it um, I will come back on Monday, that is next Monday, God willing, to, to talk to you about soteriology, uh, which is the doctrine of our salvation. Uh, please don't miss that. Please don't miss the pneumatology as well. Uh, very important classes. The Lord bless you all, and we'll see you soon. Uh, I will request, uh, uh, let's say, uh, Manoj, can you close in prayer, please? Oh, your mic is, sorry, sorry. That's fine. Uh, yes. Then we'll ask uh, Shovit, can you pray please to just finish the session? Uh, yeah, sure. Our dear Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, that we could come together and learn about you, Lord. Uh, let this uh, information steep uh, uh, Help us to understand, Lord, and not bring in confusion to us, Lord. And in time, if there is any doubt comes up, Lord, we may be able to ask, Lord, and get understanding from it. Lord, uh, thank you for all the provisions that you gave. Thank you for this time again, Lord. And asking this small prayer in our Savior, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. If you have any confusions, just uh, send me a message about uh, your question. I'll be glad to answer them. All right. God bless you. See you all. Bye-bye.